0: Good morning. Again, it's a pleasure to be with you all today as we continue in our study of Genesis. We come to one of the most familiar stories in all of Genesis, the story of the flood, Genesis 7. As we begin to prepare to read through the story, I'd like us to begin by reading from Genesis 7, not at the beginning, but towards the end, beginning in verse 17 of Genesis 7. There we find these words. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of of the spirit of life, died. Thus, he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days this is the word of god please be seated i have for most of my life had a certain fascination with war and the destruction that war can create i can't tell you how many hours i must have spent as a kid perched in front of the tv watching the history channel my favorite television programming as a child. and I watched hours and hours of programming that back then pretty much all revolved around World War II. That's pretty much all the History Channel seemed to cover back then. And so I don't know how many thousands of images I must have seen as a kid of of the atomic bomb blast. Images of of entire cities weighed laced by bombings, or weighed waste by, I mean. And all these images, I found something that, that was quite fascinating. But I think like a lot of kids, to me, those images really were nothing more than, than entertainment. They were images of, of power, of the glory of war. Because as a kid, really your extent of understanding war is reduced to a story of the good guys versus the bad guys. It's a neat story that tells the, the history of freedom. As you get older, however, and as I got older and, and continue to study those battles you've, of course, learned that there's a lot more to the story than what those images initially suggest. For while those images just suggested images of power, of victory, as a child, as I grew older, I learned there was a lot more that went into those images, a great many years that went into preparation for those battles, an awe-inspiring amount of intellect that went into developing strategies, developing technology that made those attacks possible. Even more so as you look at more footage of those battles, as you perhaps read, as I've read, first-hand accounts, you also understand that the reality of war is far from glorious. It's chaos. It's terrifying. And those images that I loved to look at as a kid, I, I learned, also told the story of unimaginable pain. Hundreds of thousands of lives lost over the course of a few minutes, much less hours. Millions of people losing homes. Entire countries being forever changed. And yet, despite that destruction, despite the heartache that that brings about, you also learn the necessity at times of these attacks. You understand that the freedom that that you enjoy comes at a very, very high cost. And so as an adult, you learn to appreciate more and more just how, how grateful we ought to be for those men and women who risk their lives. How grateful we must be for the freedoms that we enjoy day in and day out. By the time you become an adult then, war is no longer just some sheer entertainment value. At least it shouldn't be. It inspires a proper sense of awe and appreciation for the sacrifices that were made, for the intellect that went into it, for the sheer chaos and lives lost. As we look at the flood today, in the story found in Genesis 7, we find a story that I think is not all too different from that. For it is a story that many of us read as children. And indeed, many adults still have a very childlike picture of the flood when they imagine it. But what do we learn about the flood when we're kids? We, for the most part, learn about those cute animals that come onto the ark. right? We see images of the water rising, but this, this nice little boat that survives it all. And the flood to us as children, again, is, is an entertaining story. A story that may speak to the love of God, but for the most part, I think if we're honest to kids, it's a story about animals and a big storm. And that certainly is part of it. But as we look at these same images today in Genesis 7, we see there's much more to the story than we might initially assume. We see there's a, an incredible amount of preparation that went into it. We see this unimaginable intellect of God at work as he meticulously controls every single detail of the story we will see, in a similar way that we see when we look at war, images that are downright terrifying. For we see the wrath of God on display. And yet, even in the midst of that wrath, in the midst of the destruction that God brings about, we finally will also still see God's gracious hand, preserving his people, faithfully carrying out his promises. And it's only when we see these various layers that we really can appreciate what Moses was teaching us through the story of the flood, what God intends us to understand about the flood. For all, this is a story that comes to us from the ancient days. It's a story that tells us very much about how we are to live today. And it's a story that prepares us for our own day of judgment that awaits. And so I pray as we walk out this morning, we might walk out with far more than a childlike appreciation we might walk out with a mature understanding of what this flood means and what it shows us about our God. With that being said, let me go and open us up in a word of prayer and we will get started. Father in heaven, we again thank you for today. We are already blessed by the songs we were able to sing to you. Blessed by the reminders those songs gave to us, God. Reminders of, of your grace reminders of the fact that because of your grace, because of the blood of Jesus, we can someday stand before the throne of you, blameless, God. Despite our sin and despite how often we fail. What an encouraging word that is to us. As we look at Genesis 7 today, God, I pray that ultimately we who are believers might walk away feeling similarly encouraged. But might we not take the words of Genesis 7 lightly, God, I pray that we might see you in the story. Might we be humbled by your sovereign hand that is clearly on display. Might we tremble before your wrath. But might we all ultimately respond not just in sheer fear and terror, but in the desire to seek refuge in you. And in so doing, might we see that you still provide that ark of salvation to every single one of us if we would simply believe God. As always, I pray for those in here who do not yet know you, God. Might this be the morning that you cause them to see you, to hear the gospel, to be saved. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might this be a, a morning of encouragement, a morning that reminds us the God we serve, and a morning that prepares us for what you still have for us in the future. We love you, God. We praise you as always. We pray that you remove all distractions from us, God. Might we be entirely focused upon you, upon your word. Might your son be glorified in this time this morning. We pray in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, as already mentioned, as we look at this text, the story, I, I, this morning, I want us to see three things in this image of the flood. That first thing that we will look at is an image of God's meticulous rule and the humility this ought to inspire. God's meticulous rule. We see this really throughout chapter 6 and 7. But just to get us on the same page, let's begin by reading Genesis 7. The first few verses, verses 1 through 5. There we read, The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female. Also, of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. The story that is about to unfold is a story that is told in countless cultures throughout the world and history. And according to those other cultures, and even according to perhaps a first glance or a look at the story, this imagery of the flood can sound quite chaotic, out of control. But the story that's reported in Genesis is far from a story of chaos. It is a story that constantly speaks to this God who is meticulously taking care of every single detail. We saw this in part already last week and again this week as God prepares Noah for the flood, don't we? For as we saw last week before the flood arrives, God gives Noah the warning. God tells Noah exactly what's going to happen. And when God says what's going to happen, both in 6 as well as in chapter 7, God is not like some modern day weather forecaster predicting this possible storm that might come our way. We've all seen those reports, right? weathermen get on tv and they cause us to all be fearful of what's going to happen at night because they say oh this might be the storm of the century it might be headed this way but they they don't know they're just guessing but there's no guesswork in this prediction of god god knows exactly what's going to happen because god's the one that's going to cause it to happen god is bringing the storm and so in preparation for that god tells noah exactly how he survives As we saw last week, God gave Noah very detailed instructions of how the ark was to be built. And even as we begin this week in chapter 7, we see God again speaking to Noah and telling him exactly what he is to populate that ark with. Oftentimes, when we see those animals described, we take away perhaps the more obvious observation, that being that God is preparing Noah and these animals for The world post-flood, that is to say he gathers these animals because he knows they will be necessary to populate the world once again after the flood subsides. This is why, then, that he asks and requires for one male, one female of every animal. What oftentimes I think we can miss, however, is is the less obvious command that comes out of this and the less obvious example of God's sovereign work of preparation. That less obvious point is found there in verse 2 where God says, you shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female, and he goes on and explains other animals. That note that is easily overlooked is the note of of bringing on these extra animals of certain kinds, these extra clean animals. And the question, of course, is why would God need Noah to bring extra animals? We actually don't find out that answer until Genesis chapter 8, but if you flip over to Genesis chapter 8, in verse 20, you find out exactly why Noah had to bring that particular number of animals. 4 and eight twenty. After the flood subsides, we read, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the, uh, on the altar. You see, when God was preparing Noah, he wasn't just preparing him for the overall grand vision of repopulating the earth. God had in mind very specific sacrifices. God knew exactly how much Noah would need, not simply to survive, not simply to keep the animals alive, but to also then respond in worship to God. And so God, before the flood arrives, prepares Noah completely. And he's able to do so again because God knows exactly how it's going to play out because God is in complete control of this event. The same meticulous attention to detail is brought out even in the way the story is told. If you've ever read other accounts of the flood, and we'll quote one of these later, perhaps the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you find other accounts are told in, in a way that, that sounds very much like a fantasy, very much like a fairy tale. They're broad language used, broad depictions used, but they're not written in this journalistic style that, that Moses writes. These details about the age of Noah being 600 years old when the flood waters came, The details given to describe the the depths of the water later on in the verses we read in verses 17 through 20, we see exactly how deep the water is, exactly how much higher it goes above the mountains. These these are details, again, uh, that speak to a level of clarity, a level of understanding that other flood accounts just don't carry with them. Uh, These other flood accounts, again, suggest that, that the flood was a chaotic event, and yet In Genesis 7, there's no chaos. It is all carefully accounted for. The God of Israel, the God of heaven, is is the God who can prepare. The God of Israel, the God of heaven, is the God who can remember and and give each and every one of these seemingly minor details so that we as the audience are left with the understanding that this flood is no mythical tale. This flood is just as real, just as historical as the age of Noah, as the birthday of of you you or me. It is something that happened in history and something that is carefully recorded. Even beyond those details, there are other symbols that we can find in the story that, that show just how brilliant God is in planning this flood out. of so the most symbols are seen in, in the numbers that are used by Moses in recording this, the numbers that are used, more importantly, by God. You see that most carefully or most clearly. And that number seven, we read this earlier, but again... Look at Genesis 7, verse 4. After seven more days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Now, even if you are not a Genesis scholar, you understand, I think, by this point in time, the significance of the number seven, specifically seven days, don't you? What is the significance? What is that ultimately referring back to? What's the story of creation? It's no accident that in the story of the flood, which is a story of decreation, the destruction of everything, that God uses that same imagery, that same number, that same picture to highlight the fact that he is the one in control. Just as he spoke everything into creation, he will now send the floods to blot it all out, all by his sovereign hand. The clear point being made in all of this is that There is not a single detail of this worldwide event that fell outside of God's complete sovereign control. It's all by his hand. It's all by his own careful preparation. And this concept is perhaps startling to some people today, and yet to the original audience, this meticulous control should not have come as too much of a surprise, for we see the same sovereignty used to To amplify or highlight what makes God God, what makes Him so infinitely greater than you and I. One of those points that's highlighted is this sovereignty element. God regularly says, Tell me who else can do this, who can tell you exactly what will happen and then bring it to fruition. This is a summary statement of, of God's glory, of God's godness, if you will. That same sovereignty is highlighted in New Testament passages. One of my favorites is the book of Acts. And if you would turn with me to the book of Acts. For you see, the Apostle Paul highlight this same sovereign nature of God and speaking about him and describing what makes God so different from any other so-called gods. Acts chapter 17, you have this famous sermon on Mars Hill from the Apostle Paul preaching to the pagans, preaching to these Gentiles. And in the midst of this sermon, Paul compares the true God to the false gods of Rome. And he says this, beginning in verse 23. Paul says, While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, Does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their habitation, or having determined their appointed times, the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Don't miss what he says about God's sovereignty there in verse 26. This God, he says, has determined all of humanity's, every single creature's appointed time, and the boundaries of their habitation. From the beginning of time, there's no square inch of creation that falls outside of God's sovereign will, sovereign hand. He causes a nation to rise, he causes a nation to fall. His hand is at work in the conception of every child, in the death of every human being. He is over everything. Everything. And so, unlike the gods of other cultures who are distraught in times of the flood, who are confused by the actions of humanity, the God of Israel sits enthroned forever. And his rule can never be successfully challenged, he can never be tossed, tossed aside. He must always be submitted to. As I mentioned earlier, this, of course, is in direct contrast to the way that even the gods of those ancient cultures were pictured in the midst of the flood. One famous example, this comes out of the Epic of Gilgamesh, and in writing of the flood, that ancient author says this. says, No one could see his fellow, and they could not recognize each other in the midst of the great torrent. Even the gods were frightened, and they retreated, ascending to the heavens. The gods were cowering like dogs, crouching by the outer walls. Even the so-called gods in these other cultures were, were apparently terrified, He says, Because the flood seemed to be outside of their control, but that was never the case for the God in Genesis, is it? God's never scared by what's happening. God's never confused by how much rain is coming. God is meticulously controlling it all. It's a humbling thought to all of us. For it's a reminder that that we are not our own. That We belong to him. It's a reminder that his will is always done, whether or not we perhaps appreciate it. That humility is an essential part to understand the flood. It's an essential thing to see as we look at the story of the flood. But of course, as we understand this, as we look to the flood and understand that it is God's sovereign hand who is causing it, I think all of us are, are at a certain point taken aback, aren't we? When you understand the God's in control of this, you also understand that when you look at the flood you see a picture of God's absolutely terrifying wrath. In the same way that you are humbled by God's rule, as we look at his wrath, we are not only humbled, we ought to tremble. It's a point that cannot be overlooked in the way that Moses details this account. To really appreciate the horrors of the flood. We have to appreciate how, how shocking it would have been how absolutely startling it would have been to every single man, woman, and child outside of Noah and his family. Jesus Christ speaks of that unassuming start and that surprise when he references the days of Noah in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uses the imagery of the days of Noah as a sort of foreshadowing to the future day of the Lord, the future day of judgment. Matthew chapter 24 In the midst of warning about that future day, we read these words about the day of the Lord, beginning in verse 36. There Jesus says, But of that day, that is, this future judgment, Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away so too will the coming of the son of man be the morning the flood began was a morning just like every other morning for the vast majority of humanity as jesus says they were marrying and giving in a marriage which means what they were thinking nothing of judgment they were continuing on with their lives as if nothing would ever change They were making plans for the future. They were starting new families. Fathers were going off to work in the morning. They were doing everything they did every other morning because they assumed nothing was different. It's an amazing thing for us to consider for as we mentioned last week, we understand that that Noah lived for years building up the ark. He is referred to as a preacher of righteousness in the New Testament, which some people believe meant he was proclaiming the the coming flood, warning the people of the coming flood. So how could it be that the neighbors of Noah were going on with their lives, ignoring the fact that there's this massive boat that Noah's building next door? How's that possible? What's incredible, I think, as we read this, is that as bizarre as that sight would seem to all of us, it appears as if Noah in that ancient day was no different than the homeless man we see on the street corner with a a cardboard sign that says the end is near. And we understand that image. You drive past him. You don't pause and think, hmm, yeah, yeah, that guy's right. He must know something we don't know. No, you assume they're deranged. Even as believers who we know the end is near, we just drive right past it, think nothing of it, Right? The same thing, it seems, to those ancient people. Noah was nothing more than just some strange kook on the side of the road screaming about some unimaginable horror that that lay ahead. As a result, none of them believed him. And they all were planning on going about this day in the same way they went about the day before and the day before that and the day before that. Yet in the midst of that unassuming start, of course, you have this, this tumultuous turn. This turn that is immediately violent. That was immediately terrifying. You see, the second it bursts forth. In verses six through twelve, we read there again. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the water came upon the the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, they went to the ark with Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came about after seven days that the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The beginning of the flood that is depicted there with this imagery of of the fountains of the deep exploding, of the floodgates of heaven opening up, depict an event that was not gradual. It was violent. It was immediately life-changing. For it depicts these great waters rushing up from beneath you. Language speaks of these, these floodgates, these underwater aquifers that, that suddenly burst up and you can imagine volcanic-like activity, explosions as water would have rushed up, demolishing the earth. At that same moment, the floodgates of heaven opened up, they poured forth all the water they contained. And while we cannot be absolutely certain what this must have looked like, what is believed by many is that prior to this point, surrounding the earth would have been a sort of water vapor canopy. It's part of what made longevity of life possible pre-flood. It's what allowed everything to be watered, everything to be cared for, all of humanity to be protected. But we're told as the flood begins, all of that water falls upon the earth. And as it does so, it continues to build And it would have no doubt been inescapable. For we read in verses 17 through 20 how this was not just some localized event. This is something clearly that covered the surface of the entire world. I believe that's made clear in verses 17 through 20. For there we read, the flood came upon the earth for 40 days. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere and under the heaven were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. Moses here depicts truly a terrifying image. For he uses this language of of water building, water prevailing, water growing, and he's using all this language to give you this picture of water that never stops rising. It doesn't matter how high you climb to escape it it's catching up to you second by second by second. It doesn't matter where you attempt to hide, it will find you out. It doesn't matter what you do with all of your possessions or with all the people you love, this water was going to overtake you and overtake you quickly. And even if you could perhaps escape it for a brief moment, we see it's unending, isn't it? For 40 days and 40 nights, it continues. Can you imagine? Perhaps you've been camping and caught in the midst of a, of a downpour, flash flood. If you have, you understand that the terror that, that a simple storm that lasts for a few minutes can cause. Even if that storm lasts for but 10 to 15 minutes, it feels as if it is an eternity and you're desperately trying to gather all your things, desperately try to get back to the car, desperately try to find a way to stay dry. But can you imagine that sight for 40 days? Can you imagine the terror of these moments? And if you can't, well, no doubt the details of the devastating results bring that terror to mind. For we see that the flood ultimately accomplishes exactly what God intended for it to accomplish. That is, immediate and utter devastation. For throughout the Earth, there's death, there's decay we read the detail of that death in verse 21 following once again we see we read all flesh that moved upon the earth perished birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth all of mankind of all that was on the dry land all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things to the birds of the sky and they were blotted out from the earth you compare that image to the beautiful imagery of Genesis 1 and 2 Genesis 1 and 2 where the earth is is full of color it's full of life it's full of joy It's characterized best by by the Garden of Eden, paradise, where Adam and Eve ruled righteously, where they loved each other righteously, where they walked with their creator, where they experienced life as it was intended to be lived, and they experienced because God had breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of man. You come away from that and look at Genesis 7 and you appreciate just how horrific this imagery is. For that same breath of life that had breathed in the nostrils of man was now snuffed out. And all of humanity was killed. All of creatures of the land and in the sky are killed all of this life taken because it was all stained by sin. Because it had forgotten the point of life. It had forgotten the meaning of existence. It had forgotten the source of that joy, the source of that beauty, and so God took it away. It's a terrifying image. And yet as terrifying as it was, It's not the only image of God's wrath that we see in scripture, is it? It would be nice if we could move past Genesis 7 and and say, okay, well that's the one time God was wrathful, but move past that, everything's nice and kind and polite. People of God knew that wasn't the case. People of God knew what the wrath of God meant. This original Hebrew audience saw it firsthand in the plagues, didn't they? Again, stories that we can reduce to childhood imagery, but, but stories that would have been downright terrifying to experience. Stories that speak of, of weeping and wailing throughout Egypt because God took the life of the firstborn. Stories that speak of darkness, stories that speak of pain, stories that speak of death, and stories even that end with the Red Sea where after God delivers his people, he brings the waters crashing down, crushing the armies of the Pharaoh. Those same Hebrew people got a taste of of that difference of God, his wrath, but also just his glory, even when they came to Mount Sinai, for even after they experienced all that, when they come to Mount Sinai, when they're confronted with God, what is their response? They're terrified, utterly terrified, because they're given again that picture of the fact that God is God and you are not. That God is pure, that God is holy, and if you fall short of God's standards, the result, the punishment that you deserve is nothing short of death. The people of God and the Israelites knew that. And even when you come to the New Testament, you see the wrath of God does not cease, for we're given these, these images, these pictures that remind us the holiness of God, the glory of God, how God responds to sin. I think we see glimpses of that at least when it comes to his power and the way that the disciples so frequently interact with Jesus when he calms the storm, when he commands authority over the spirits. They are not overjoyed when they see these things. They are terrified. They're terrified because they're confronted with the godness of God. They're confronted by his glory. We see the same wrath and ultimately the greatest picture, of course, in the crucifixion of Christ. For you read those details. Those details. And you understand that as glorious as that moment is for believers, it would have been downright terrifying to experience, for darkness comes over the earth. We see the punishment of of death brought down. And we again see a vivid picture, a vivid reminder of what we all deserve. But we must understand in all these pictures, and what I think the people of God understood throughout all scriptures, is that stories like the flood, again, are not meant for us to just simply look back on, but, but this terror... And this trembling is always a response because we understand what the flood means for us in the future. For as terrifying as the flood is, as clear of a picture it is as the wrath of God, we are told time and time again that that it's meant to be a type. It's a picture of of that greater day of judgment that waits all of creation. This imagery is picked up a number of times in the prophets. One of the clearest examples is found in Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah 24, speaking of the future day of the Lord, the prophet Isaiah says this in in chapter 24, beginning in verse 17. There the prophet, speaking of this future day, says, terror and pit, snare. Confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees, the report of disaster will fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare, for the windows above are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder the earth is split through the earth shakes violently the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard it totters like a shack for its transgressions is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again so it will happen in that day that the lord will punish the host of heavens on high and the kings of the earth on uh, and the kings of the earth on earth They will be gathered together like prisoners in a dungeon. They will be confronted in prison after many days. They will be punished. The moon will be abashed and the sun is shamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on his Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be for all his elders. The God of the flood. Same God who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. The same God who sends his son to die on the cross is the same God who's coming for us again. And please understand, He's not a God to be trifled with. He is a God that despises sin. He is a God whose judgment is exact, it is perfect, it is just. And it's a judgment that no one can escape. This warning, this picture of God's wrath is one, again, that it would be tempting to overlook. But when you read through the account of Genesis 7, when you consider what it's saying to us, it cannot be ignored. For it is so clearly one of the themes of the story. This wrath of God, when we look upon the scene of the flood, we see that wrath, we see death, we see destruction. And we tremble. For every single one of us, when left to our own, ought to respond to this image and the story, not with a, oh, that's really interesting. What a cool story. No, we respond with the realization that if left to our own accord, all of us face certain death. No one can stand before God like this. No one can hope. To to avoid the flood waters rising, no one can hope to to avoid the wrath of God as it's poured out on all of humanity. Now, when we see the flood, we see a God who is infinite in His control, and we see a God whose wrath is overwhelming. And it's at this point in time that many people would rather move past the story of the flood, for it seems entirely undesirable, entirely unattractive. But as difficult as it is, it's important to look back again at this image. It's important again to, to look more closely at the scenery that's being painted by, by Noah, ultimately by Moses who records it. When we look back at this image, we don't just see an image of God's meticulous sovereign hand. We don't even just see a picture of God's wrath. We see in the midst of all those details, shockingly enough, also a picture of God's saving hand. It's a picture that we would perhaps not expect when reading through the details we just described, but if we've been paying attention, it's an image that we've seen all over the story from Genesis 6 through Genesis 7. We see the grace of God at work just in his mere work of, of preparing Noah, don't we? God saw Noah, as we talked about last week. God sees Noah in the midst of all the darkness. God chooses Noah. He plucks Noah out. He tells Noah exactly what's going to happen. God didn't have to do that, but he does it out of grace, out of mercy. And God prepares Noah by telling him exactly what's going to happen, by telling him exactly how he is to survive, by giving him these details of the ark, and as we said already today, by telling him, here are the animals you bring forward. Here's exactly when the rain's going to fall. Here's the day that you need to enter into that ark. But perhaps most beautifully, this picture of preservation, this picture of God's saving grace is found tucked in the middle of the flood narrative in Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. Let me read that again. There, Beginning in verse 15, we read, "So they, that is, these animals, went into the ark to Noah, by twos of all flesh in which the breath of life, those that entered male and female of all flesh, entered as God has commanded, as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind them." Again, if you are caught up in the other details of the story, that last phrase is so easy to miss, miss to, to jump over. but there is such beauty. Such grace in those few words, those words that tell us that the Lord closed the ark behind Noah and the animals. That beauty is is found both in the act of closing them, but also in the the name attributed to God here. For we see that when when Moses records this event, he doesn't refer to to God just by any random name. He, He calls him the Lord. If you've been paying attention throughout the book of Genesis, you understand that name has a very specific connotation to it, specifically a connection to the covenant. When we read the Lord, in all caps, there we're reading about the Lord, the God of the covenant, the one who promised Noah that he would allow him to survive. He is the same God who then preserves Noah by sealing the ark, by taking that infinite, almighty, wrathful hand and leading them into the ark only to close the door gently behind them to seal it shut so that when the floodwaters came, when the explosion of those underwater arc force came, when the the sky rained down upon them, Noah and his people, his family, those animals, were kept safe and secure and sound. As everyone else perished, As the breath of life was snuffed out of everything and everyone else, Noah was kept dry, Noah was kept fed, Noah was kept secure. And he was kept by all these things, not because of his own intellect, not because he planned ahead in the way that no one else planned ahead, but because the hand of God was directly upon him. And what you find when you understand that then is when you read the story, we find yet another story that's not all entirely unlike the other stories in the Old Testament and Scripture. We find yet again a picture that reminds us of the reality of sin, the reality of God's wrath, but also the reality of God's faithfulness. And again, to the original audience of this tale, you can no doubt assume that their minds go to their own survival story, the Exodus, a story filled with images of wrath, A story that includes the armies of Pharaoh being overtaken, but a story in which the people of God themselves are preserved. For the same waters that God used to kill Pharaoh's army are the waters that God carefully parted and ushered his people through safely. It's the same imagery we see after they enter into the wilderness and they live in a place that seems uninhabitable. A place of starvation, a place of dehydration, and yet a place that God carefully provides his people A place where God preserves his people. Why? Not because of their righteousness, but because of his faithfulness. Because he is the Lord, the God of the covenant. It's the same imagery that's found throughout the prophets. It's the same idea that's proclaimed in Proverbs 18, which tells us those who need help find refuge in the Lord. And it's the same promise that's ultimately given to every single one of us. That story and its connection to the flood is given in a beautiful manner over in 1 Peter chapter 3. In fact, I encourage you to turn to 1 Peter 3 so you see what this promise means for us. There again in 1 Peter 3, you have yet another picture of the coming day of judgment, the coming day of the Lord. And in speaking of the day of the Lord, Peter speaks again of Noah and how we are connected to the story. We'll pick it up in First Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 18 through 22. There we read this For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, Baptism now saves you, not by the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. In the midst of all these references to the Old Testament, it's easy to become confused as to what Peter is saying, but the main point, I believe, is clear. That point being. That the flood meant death, and meant destruction for the vast majority of humanity except for those select few. Those select few were kept preserved because of the ark. Those who were in the ark survived. Corresponding to that, he says, baptism now saves you not the act that you do when you step forward in the baptistry, but the appeal you are making to Christ in that activity. For as we come to Christ, as we put our faith in Christ, we are like Noah entering into that ark. We are like Noah entering into that single means of preservation of life. And in the same way that God seals Noah into the ark, God seals us into that covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you are in that relationship with Christ, it doesn't matter how terrifying this world might become. It doesn't matter when the day of judgment comes because you will be kept dry. You will be kept safe. You will be preserved. Not because of your own personal obedience, but because of the perfect obedience and righteousness of our Savior Jesus Christ. We see that promise made to us and we see it fulfilled in Noah. For at the end of Genesis seven, while the rest of humanity perished, we read, but Noah survived. Noah and his family were preserved. As we consider all of these sites, we take a step back from the flood, then we must ask ourselves, how are we supposed to respond to this story? For it is so clearly not just some children relegated, not some story relegated to children that's intended to entertain. It's a story that I think when properly understood should inspire every single one of us, man, woman, and children, to respond in in silent awe of it all. that silence will be very different depending on if you're a believer or an unbeliever, right? If you're an unbeliever, I pray, and this might sound odd, I pray that you sit in the pew this morning utterly terrified. I hope you do. I hope you understand that you are a sinner sitting under the wrath of the almighty God of creation. And left your own devices, you will go to hell. You will be destroyed. But unbeliever, I pray also that you understand the message of the flood and the message of scripture is not simply you're going to hell. It's you're going to hell, but you don't have to. God has provided a way for your preservation, a way for your escape. For Noah, that way of escape was the ark temporarily, but for all of us, that way of escape is Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, unbeliever, repent of your sin, trust Christ, enter into that covenant, and you will be saved. If you have any questions about that, as always, please seek me afterwards. For my fellow believers in Christ, our response is slightly different, although I think it begins very much in the same way. That is, we ought to all stand in silent awe before God when we read a story like the flood. And as we look back at that story, we ought to rightly be humbled. Humbled by the fact that we deserve that. Humbled by the fact that God is so sovereign, he can control all of that. But as we look back and we are humbled, we also must strive to look forward and be thankful knowing that our refuge has already arrived. That even though we do not know the day of the Lord when it will come, that we've already been given our ark and that we will be preserved if we're simply in Christ and we rejoice in that. But as we rejoice in that and as we continue to live in the present, let us be aware again of the fact that we live in a world in which everyone else stands exposed. And so believers, let us gently call out to them begging them to respond to Christ, begging them to join us on the ark so that they too can be saved. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, what a humbling story the flood is. It's a picture of your sovereign hand, God. And truly no detail falls outside of your control. And we thank you for that because of that, apart from that, this world would be a terrifying place to live. But God, we know you're in control. We know your will is always accomplished and so we are humbled before you. We thank you for that. We thank you for the awe-inspiring imagery we're given of your wrath. It's a reminder of the punishment we all deserve. A punishment being death. And yet, God, we're also reminded of the fact that you've given us a way to be preserved, a way to be saved. And so I pray that every single one of us might be saved this morning. For those who do not yet know you, God, save them from their sin. Open their eyes to their need of you, God. Save them before you bring judgment. For the rest of us, God, might we rejoice knowing that we are saved entirely by your son, Jesus Christ. Might we rejoice in that, God. But might we be like Noah, preachers of righteousness, God, urging and begging others to come forward, God. We so desperately need you to come again, Christ. We desperately need you to save us. And so God, come today. Please, God, give us patience while we wait. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.